Well, as you're taking your seat, if you will, open up your Bible to Isaiah chapter 8. Isaiah chapter 8. I want to read a few verses here to set the stage for what we're going to study. Sort of encompass all that we have studied. And if you can, keep your Bibles open because we're going to be using them tonight, flipping to various places, comparing Scripture with Scripture. Isaiah chapter 8, and I'll begin in verse 11 and read through verse 20. For the Lord spoke thus to me with His strong hand upon me, and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying... Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, Him you shall honor as holy. Let Him be your fear, and let Him be your dread. And He will become a sanctuary, and a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem." And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, Inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. Should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. Now in this section from Isaiah... There's already been prophesied the coming of the armies of Assyria to capture and plunder both Samaria and Damascus. And Assyria will eventually capture and plunder the nation of Judah as well. And even in the face of this judgment that is coming in accord with the words of the prophet, the people still refused to turn and trust in the Lord. They were still hoping in the other nations. They still had faith in Assyria, thinking that Assyria was going to come and help uh, them, the people of Judah specifically. And instead of going to the prophet of the Lord and seeking the word of the Lord, they sought revelation from mediums and necromancers. In other words, they went to uh, those who claimed to speak with the dead, who we might compare them to modern-day psychics and crystal ball readers and palm readers, of this or that. And look at Isaiah's response there in verse 20 to those who would go to hear from the dead, to the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. What he's saying is if this people will not go to their God who has given them revelation from his own mouth, it's because they don't have spiritual illumination. These people are dead in their sins and it shows in the fact that God's proven himself faithful and true to His Word, and they still would not listen. They still sought to inquire after mediums and necromancers. 
And it's the same for us. We need to be like the prophet. And while we appreciate our confession and the words of our confession with regard to the Scriptures, we appreciate our confession and hold to our confession because as we'll see tonight, our confession says in a word to the teaching and to the testimony. It points us to the Scriptures. And so we need to keep that in mind at all times that while we do hold to a confession and we believe our confession is true, it's true because it tells us about the Scriptures, not the other way around. So that being said, let's, let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer one more time. Uh, I want you guys to pray specifically. Maybe some of you have seen the, the news story from the church in Texas, uh, First Baptist Church, Sutherland Springs, Texas. They had a walk-in shooter today in their service, small Baptist church. They said maybe 50 people in attendance regularly. At least 25 are dead today after the worship service, including a pregnant woman and children. Um, we need to pray for these people and consider uh, their state, consider the state of our nation, the wickedness of man, and uh, try to put ourselves in their shoes and, uh, and thank the Lord it wasn't us, but remember that it could be us. And so thank Him again for His mercy toward us. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for Your Word, and we do appreciate, and we are grateful that You would speak to us when You didn't have to, and, and we're not under any compulsion except from Your own love and compassion and pity toward us. You've spoken. Lord, we confess that we, more often than not, do not give Your Word of its rightful place in our lives day-to-day uh, -day lives in our thinking and in our walking and in our working and in our uh, relations with other people. But I pray that that would change, God, that as we grow and as we mature in Christ and as the Spirit works in us, one of the evident fruits of that would be a, a greater love for Your Word and a greater devotion to Your Word, uh, evidencing itself and more time spent in the Word of God in study and meditation. Help us tonight as we do that. I pray that we would grow in our understanding. Lord, we do lift up to you this church in Texas. Father, we cannot imagine what they're suffering and what they're going through, their family members, their loved ones. We, we cannot comprehend. Father, I pray that you would grant them peace and understanding. Lord, I pray that their theology would show forth that they would show that Christians are those who suffer well, that Christians are those who in spite of affliction and persecution and this type of thing are still strong and still hope in God. I pray that they would exhibit love and compassion. Lord, I pray that our hearts would break for them as fellow brothers and sisters, as members of your body, just like those in this room. I pray that we would ache for them and hurt for them and, and continue to pray for them in the days and weeks to come. Lord, our, our nation is in a pitiful state. And while we may have laws in place and we may have rules in place and locks on our doors, none of this can constrain the wickedness and the evil of the heart of men. Lord, only the gospel can do that. Only Christ 
in the soul of man can do that. And so I pray that you would continue to do that work. Protect your people. Make your church stronger because of these sort of things. Bless that church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we're going to conclude the chapter on the Holy Scriptures tonight from our Confession, chapter 1, by looking at the ninth and 10th paragraphs. And so what I want to do is begin by summarizing what we've seen in paragraphs 1 through 8, all of which I think leads us to paragraphs 9 and 10. First, in paragraphs 1 through 4, we studied what we might could call the objective truths that we believe concerning the Scriptures. The first one in the first paragraph is summed up really in that first sentence, which I've tried to quote over and over, and I hope that you have at least begun to recognize, if not memorize for yourself, the Scriptures are the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. And, and really everything we believe about the Scriptures is summed up in that phrase. While we know that God has revealed Himself in creation, He has more fully revealed Himself to His people for their salvation through the Scriptures. That was paragraph number one. In the second paragraph, we looked at the 66 books that are in the canon of Scripture. There are 66 books, no more and no less. 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament. In the third paragraph, we saw that the apocryphal books or the intertestamental writings are not included in the Christian canon of Scripture. In the fourth paragraph, we saw that the authority of the Scriptures is based on their author who is God. Because God is the author, therefore they come with the authority of God. Now again, all of these things are objective truths. They're true whether we believe them or not. Whether any man would come and consent to these things, they are true outside of us. Before we got here, they were true. After we're gone, they'll still be true. But then we come to paragraphs 5 through 8 and we begin to look at what we could call the subjective truths about Scripture. Those truths that deal with our experience with the Scriptures as we come to them. And so we saw in the fifth paragraph that while churches and men may persuade us, and I can stand here all day long and preach and preach and preach and, and we could just study this chapter of the Confession for the rest of our lives in, on, on repeat... That's as far as I can go. That ultimately, it is the Holy Spirit of God Himself uh, and only the Holy Spirit who can convince us in our hearts and in our minds of the authority and the truths of Scripture. And that happens as a result of His indwelling each and every individual believer as they come to the Scriptures. He will convince them of the authority and of the truths of Scripture. In the sixth paragraph, we learn that as we read the Scriptures... We are to remember that everything God intends for us to find in the Scriptures is either explicitly stated or can be logically deduced from the Scriptures. And while we will never add to the Scriptures or add to the Revelation, we might glean more detailed applications from them or the applications might uh, compound throughout the ages and in every different culture, but we'll never add to them. 
And we can deduce these things from the Scriptures, or again, they're explicitly stated in those areas where we could say chapter and verse, there it is. Other things like the doctrine of the Trinity, not a chapter and verse issue. It's, it's a compilation of Scriptures, and we deduce from them. In chapter, or in paragraph number 7, we saw that everything in the Scriptures are not equally clear, nor all, are they clear to all believers equally. And in spite of that, through the regular use of the means of grace, reading the Scriptures, prayer, hearing the Scriptures preached and taught, any common person can learn of the truths of God's salvation and can come to a saving knowledge of these truths from the Scriptures. Those things necessary for salvation are not hidden or concealed or mysterious in, in, in how they are revealed. God has openly revealed them, not concealed them. In the eighth paragraph, we saw that we, because we believe that all men should have the Scriptures, we also believe that these Scriptures should be taken and translated into the common languages of every nation. And in this way, people from every tongue will learn of God's salvation in Christ. And we believe that is deduced actually from the Scriptures. And again, those are what we could call subjective beliefs not subjective as in the world would, would use the term in saying, well, that might be true for you, but it's not true for me, but subjective in that they are true and they are recognized as we personally engage with the Scriptures or as we consider how the Scriptures are to come in contact with people from every tribe and people and language and nation under heaven. Now, knowing all of that to be true, all of those objective truths... God's Word, God's authority, 66 books, the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience, knowing all of that, and also believing all of these subjective truths about the conviction of the Holy Spirit, things either explicitly stated or logically deduced, all things, rather, while they're not the same and equally clear, they, they are clear enough for us to learn them, and that everybody should have the Scriptures, what is the first rule that a person has to consider when he or she approaches the Scriptures and begins the journey of seeking to understand what is taught. The very first and most basic rule. Well, we find that rule in paragraph 9. And I'll read it for you. The infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about true and full sense of any Scripture, which are not many or manifold, but one, it must be searched by other places that speak more clearly. Now we have in this paragraph what I've entitled the interpretation of the Scriptures. Every time we read the Scriptures, or hear the Scriptures read, or hear the Scriptures preached, we are expected to take what we hear, what has been written, and translate its meaning. All of the time, while, while Scripture is being read or you're reading, it should be being translated in your mind. You're asking yourself, what does this mean? If the Scriptures are just black ink on white paper with no effect on us, then we wouldn't have to do this. 
I often use the TV guide as an illustration. Uh, I'm really not even certain that they still make those, but when I was young, I remembered the TV guide laying around. The TV guide, to me, is merely black ink on white paper. It has no effect on my life at all. And so it could lay there all day long, and I could read it all day long, but it's not going to mean anything to me. But the Scriptures are different because they are God's Word to us. They do have an effect on us. And so because they are the written Word of God to us, then as we read, we have to take the words and the phrases and the sentences and the stories and the doctrines, and we have to make sense of them in our brains all the time. We're reading and we're considering, what does this mean? What does this teach me about God? What does this teach me about myself? What does God have to say to me from this text? Now, again, what principle rule must we remember when we're doing that? Well, the first statement in this paragraph answers the question, the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. There's the rule. The rest of the paragraph is sort of the application of the rule. I want to unpack this first sentence, this rule. And in this sentence we see first, our specific need. Our specific need. Notice, the infallible rule. That's what we need, is the infallible rule. You remember the word infallible means that it is unable to fail. It is without the ability to fall short, which, remember, is a key characteristic of the Scriptures themselves. They are infallible. And a rule, remember, is a standard by which a thing is to be judged, also a characteristic of the Scriptures. And so when it comes to biblical interpretation, that's what we want, that's what we need, is the infallible rule. Now, we might glean a lot from extra-biblical sources, commentaries, word studies, preaching and teaching, all of these things. We will glean much, but we know that they are not infallible. They are fallible sources. What we need is the infallible rule. We need the standard by which we might interpret the Scriptures that does not have the ability to err in its interpretation. So that's our specific need, the infallible rule. Notice also in this sentence that we have encapsulated in this phrase, our area of study, the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture. That's our area of study. That's our field of, of work. Every one of us, we labor in that field of the interpretation of the Scriptures. The study of the interpretation of the Scriptures is called... Hermeneutics, which is a Latinized form of a Greek word, hermeneutikos, which, merely, which means just to the interpretation of words, finding out what words mean. Hermeneutics is what we engage in every time we read the Scriptures. It's not just the job of the pastor or the teacher or the preacher. Every Christian, when you open the Bible and you read and you think in your mind, wow, that's encouraging, or wow, that's convicting, or wow, that's beneficial, you have already assumed that it means something, that it means something in your life, and that you can glean something from it. You have interpreted the author's words. You've engaged in hermeneutics. 
And so again, if we are to interpret or to comprehend for ourselves the meaning of words and phrases and sentences, that's our area of study, we want the infallible rule. We want the guide in that study that cannot err. Our area of labor is hermeneutics, our specific need, the infallible rule. Thirdly, notice we find in this sentence what is our ultimate guide. Our ultimate guide, the infallible rule of interpretation of Scripture is the Scripture itself. Now, why is that? Think about it. Why is the Scripture the only infallible rule for interpreting the Scriptures? Because the Scriptures are the only certain, sufficient, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. Since the interpretation of the Scriptures falls into the category of saving knowledge, faith, and obedience, then only the Scriptures are the infallible rule of that work. You see, it's sort of a circular thing. We, we have to know the Scriptures, and we want the infallible rule to help us study the Scriptures. There's only one option. It is the Scriptures. The Scriptures are inspired by God. And so when the Scriptures interpret the Scriptures, we have God's Holy Spirit inspired, inerrant, infallible interpretation of His own words. That's the whole point of, of, uh, of 1 Corinthians 2. It's not, in its immediate context, the point is not that we have the Holy Spirit so that we can understand it. The point is only God can interpret the Scriptures. Anybody who has the Spirit will understand the Scriptures, but the, the, the foundational rule is only God can tell us what His words mean. Turn with me, if you will, to 2 Peter chapter 1. And this is a passage that we've looked at before. We'll look at it again and one other very close to it to just sort of support this point. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Why is that? Because they didn't come up with the Scripture themselves to begin with. And that's what he says in verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. In other words, Scripture comes from God, therefore Scripture's interpretation comes from God. Now Peter sort of emphasized, you can flip like maybe three pages over, three or four pages over in your Bible to 1 Peter chapter 1, where he actually makes this same point again in a different way. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 12. Peter says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. Now you can see there, just in that time frame, what prophets were talking about. They were prophesying 
predicting the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glory. So these were prior to Christ prophets. And then it says, It was revealed to them that they were not serving, or serving not themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. So here's Peter's system of thought. There were prophets who prophesied about the grace and the, the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories of Christ. And then those who came to you who preached the gospel by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, they were announcing and clarifying the full revelation of what those Old Testament prophets were looking at. Again, the point is, God the Spirit interprets the words of God there through apostolic preaching. Now, we don't have apostolic preachers in the flesh anymore, but we do have their words recorded in the Scripture. And therefore, for us, Scripture itself is the interpreter of Scripture, not private interpretation. Not when someone says, well, I have my Bible and the Holy Spirit, as if this is something separate, and the Holy Spirit is going to talk to me separate from that to help me understand that over there. That's not the case. The Holy Spirit will speak to you from this to tell you what this means. That's the point. So, we have our need, the infallible rule. We have our area of study, hermeneutics. What is our infallible rule? It is the Scriptures. The Scriptures interpret the Scriptures. Now, all of that leads us to this final statement in the paragraph which summarizes the practical application. Because here's the question. If our guide is the Scriptures, our area of study is hermeneutics, and our, our need is that infallible rule which is the Scriptures, then what do we do? How, how do we then go about studying the Scriptures? How do we carry out this, this, this study? Or, or we might ask, what's the first thing we need to understand as we come to the Scriptures? And then it's in this last phrase, and therefore, meaning in light of all of that, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which are not manifold but one, it must be searched by other places that speak more clearly. Now, have you ever had a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture? Anybody ever been there? I have a question about the true and full sense of this Scripture. Okay, good. Then you agree with our confession in chapter 1, paragraph 7, where it says, all things are not alike plain to all, and all things are not equally plain. And so everybody, all of us at some point are going to come to a passage of Scripture and we're going to have a question about the true and full sense. Okay, has anyone ever heard someone say, well, that's just your interpretation? We've all heard that. Well, our, the confession states very clearly when it says, therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture, which are not manifold or which are not many but one, it's saying that there's only one interpretation. That's what we, we need to get that, that groundwork laid and fresh in our minds. There's only one interpretation. Our job as believers is to labor to find that one interpretation. 
So when someone says that's just your interpretation, no, I don't have mine, you don't have yours, there's only one interpretation. And so how do we do it? How do we find that one interpretation? It must be searched by other places that speak more clearly. And here we have a summary, a summary statement of, the, of two of the most important rules in all of scriptural interpretation, in all of hermeneutics. Yes, we need to know who the author is and who he was writing to and when he wrote and why he wrote and, and, the, and all of the cultural context that lies within what's being written. But before all of that, I would say even above all of that, we need to understand these two rules of interpretation. Again, Scripture is its own infallible interpreter. We need the infallible interpretation. Therefore, we must use the Scriptures to interpret the Scriptures. Historically, that's been laid out. All of that stuff has been laid out using two rules. The first one is called the Analogia Scripturae, or the Analogy of Scripture. The second one is the Analogia Fidei, or the Analogy of Faith. Analogy of Scripture... Analogy of faith. Two rules. Now, we'll, I'm going to break those two rules up. We're going to look at examples of each of them so that we learn how to do this. First, the definition of the analogy of Scripture. And I'm going to quote this from Mueller's Dictionary of Greek and Latin Theological Terms. Now, I know when I read the title of that book, you're all wondering, where can I get my hands on a copy? They actually come out with, uh, recently came out with the second edition, revised edition. Apparently they're adding Greek and Latin terms to study of theology. Um, but I'm going to read his, his, his definition of, obviously he has analogia scripturae, but the analogy of scripture is this. The interpretation of unclear, difficult, or ambiguous passages of scripture, which we've all seen, heard, read, and found, by comparison with clear and unambiguous passages that refer to the same teaching or event. The interpretation of unclear, difficult, or ambiguous passages of Scripture by comparison with clear and unambiguous passages that refer to the same teaching or event. Or to say it another way, when you're unsure about the meaning of a passage of Scripture, an event or a teaching in Scripture, compare that place in Scripture with another place in Scripture that is referring to the same thing. Now let's practice it. You ready? We'll practice our rule. Turn to Psalm 118. Psalm 118. We're going to see if it works. Beginning in verse 21 of Psalm 118, we read these words, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. 
This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Now, if you were to read that, you would say, what in the world do those three verses have in common? Or, or four verses. We went from salvation to a stone being rejected to the Lord's doing it to this day that the Lord has made. We could consider that the unclear passage. If we were just reading the Scriptures for the very first time, Genesis to Revelation, and we had no understanding of Christianity, you would read that and you would say, I have not a clue what's being spoken of here. Well, then let's move to a, a less unclear passage or, or a more clear passage found in Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. I know what you're thinking. We've already done this today. But this is a very simple example. We'll look at another one in a minute that, that I think will make the point even better. Matthew chapter 21, verse 42. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now, if we were paying attention to the parable there, we know the Lord has just told a parable about some tenants who, who rejected a son, and then all of a sudden Jesus starts talking about a stone being rejected. And so we might begin to think, you know, I bet that stone rejected by those builders has something to do, some sort of parallel with this son who was rejected by these tenants. I bet they're related somehow. Well, then we can move to the clear and unambiguous text of Acts chapter 4. In Acts chapter 4, Peter is preaching. Peter, with the apostolic authority of Christ, preaching inerrant and infallible words, says in 11 and 12 of chapter 4, This Jesus is the stone which was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, or which, by which we must be saved. My King James is coming out. Peter tells us, Jesus is the cornerstone. You are the builders. You rejected Him. That's what the rejection of the cornerstone means. He has become the cornerstone, and then he goes immediately into, in this, in, into this, this concept of salvation. There's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which me must be saved. He's preaching the gospel of Christ. He's saying, in Christ's work, in mediating between God and men on the cross, and finishing and accomplishing all of that work, He is the cornerstone. In Him is salvation. And so when we go back to Psalm 118 and we say, I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. Hey, that's Christ. Christ is my salvation. We could go to the next verse. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. What is that day? It is the day of the accomplishment of the work of Christ. And if you read the old writers, they would say this is a clear prophecy that the Sabbath would be moved from Saturday to Sunday, the day on which the Lord would finish His work 
would be the day that we would rejoice and be glad in, and then I also can be expanded out into just the, the church age, this, this, this day as, a, as a, a new age in which Christ reigns, His work being accomplished on our behalf. You see how that went. It's unclear to a little bit of clarity to Peter just tells you. You just compare it. This, they're all referring to the same verses. So what do we learn as we use Scripture to interpret Scripture? Now, most of us have been around Bible teaching and Bible talking so much, we actually understand a lot more than we think we do. When I read in Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, I don't know anybody who would read that in this room who, who would have wondered what in the world is going on there, even before I preached that message this morning. You would probably have already had heard at some point about Christ being the cornerstone. Or you would have heard or ever sang, in Christ alone, our cornerstone. You would have sang it. You just know. We do this, again, I think we, we understand a lot more than we think we do. And I'll prove that to you as well. Turn to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, again, we're imagining that we have no understanding of Christianity, no Christian doctrine or teaching. We've picked, we found a Bible, we picked it up and we started reading on the first page. We've now made it to page 3, and we read in chapter 3 and verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now you tell me, who is the serpent? Satan. How do you know that? Nowhere in the text does this say that that serpent is, is Satan. Nowhere prior to this does the Bible give any hint that there is a Satan. And yet, you just know that it's Satan. Listen to this from Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 2, he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan and bound him for a thousand years. From the last book of Scripture, we are given information about something written on the third page of Scripture. Information I would imagine most of us have all just taken for granted. We just assume. Well, that's the devil. That is the analogia scripturae. That is using scripture to interpret scripture. It is using clear and unambiguous passages. The serpent is the devil and Satan to help us understand this deceptive, crafty serpent in the garden. Again, we know more than we think we do when it comes to interpreting the scriptures. I would imagine even a lost person who, do, who doesn't claim to be a Christian, you could read that and say, who is the serpent in the garden? And they would say, you know, it's supposed to be the devil. We know these things. We're using Scripture to interpret Scripture. The second rule, that's the analogy of Scripture. The second rule is the analogy of faith. The analogy of faith. And these, these do take a while. Maybe they won't for you. For me, it took me a long time to get these straightened up in my head. The analogy of faith is defined as this. Again, here's Mueller. The use of 
the general sense and meaning of the Scripture constructed from the clear or unambiguous loci or places, locations, as the basis for interpreting unclear or ambiguous texts. As distinct from the more basic Analogia Scripturae, the Analogia Fide presupposes a sense of the theological meaning of Scripture. Now let me break that down. Say it a different way. When a text or a teaching is unclear, we can use the basic theological sense of the whole Bible with regard to that topic to help us understand it. When you hear that word faith, the analogy of faith, think of the faith, the analogy of the faith, or the analogy of Christianity as a whole, the analogy of the whole breadth of Christian doctrine all put together. Again, this presupposes a sense of the theological meaning of the Scriptures. This is a good plug for systematic theology. Understanding all of the, what all of the Bible has to say about this topic, and that topic, and that topic. And so when you come to a passage of Scripture addressing that topic, you already you remember what you read before. You, it, again, presupposes a sense of the theological meaning of Scripture. Analogy of faith, analogy of the, the whole breadth of Christian doctrine, the comparison of everything we know in Christianity, using it to help us understand a passage. So let's, let's practice this one, see if it works. Turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15. First Samuel chapter 15. I read verse 35. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. The Lord regretted. Now I'll ask you, did God make a mistake? Did God realize at this point, after Saul's sin and his rejection of Saul as king, did God come to the realization at this point, whoops, I put the wrong man in office? No. Every one of you should say no. You just use the analogia fide. You just use the analogy of faith. The question is, how do you know that when I read, and the Lord regretted, that I should not take that to mean what it means when I say I regretted something? Well, one of the best, the easiest to find explanations is if you just move your eyes up six verses on the page. In verse 29, we read these words. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Now, is the author so sloppy that in six verses he would say, God does not regret, the Lord regretted. Is he, is he that foolish? 
Well, think about what's happening in these two passages, and we'll look at others. In verse 29, the author is telling us about the nature of God, His character. He will not lie. He's not a man that he should have regret. He will not have regret. That's who God is. In verse 35, and the Lord regretted, the author is telling us something God did, explaining an action of God. Now let's draw this out a little bit more. In Malachi chapter, or, or Numbers 23 verse 19, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Again, another statement about the character of God, not telling us something God did or did not do, something about God Himself. He's not a man. Malachi 3.6, the Lord speaking for Himself, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. That is the great comfort of God's impassibility. He cannot change. Therefore we are not consumed. In James 1.17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So we see the universal testimony of Scripture when the author is directly describing the nature of God, God is like this, or when God Himself says, I am like this, the universal testimony is God does not change His mind. He does not change. He does not have regret. There is no variation with God. He is immutable and impassable. So how then can we use that, all of that, that some uh, sense the the of the theological meaning of the Scripture with regard to God's character to help us understand 1 Samuel 15.35? Because that verse says He did regret. Well, again, in that text... The author is not describing the nature of God or the character of God. He's describing the demeanor of God toward men from the perspective of a man. Or as one author puts it, you'll like this, I'm sure. This is an anthropopathic expression that gives context to the revelation of major changes in God's redemptive dealings with Israel's king. So in other words, as we're reading the, the, the storyline of the Bible, God put Saul in, on the throne, and then we get to the point where God takes Saul off of the throne, and we have to know as human beings what is happening. Why is God, why does it seem like God is doing something different than He appeared to be doing before. The only way we can describe that is in human language and with human thoughts. Anthropomorphism is using physical features to describe God. And anthropopathism is using a human way of thinking to describe God's way of thinking. But it's not His way of thinking. We, we can't describe His way of thinking in anything other than human language. We have to remember that Scripture is at its essence an infinite and incomprehensible God revealing Himself to creatures by accommodating their speech to Himself. So if God said, if we wanted to say, well, Lord, it seems like you regretted and changed your mind. How would you like me to write that? And He said, go ahead, just explain what happened there, please. There's no way we could describe an immutable God appearing to change His course. 
He has to say, he has to reveal himself through human language. The only way we can talk is he regretted. He changed his mind. I think the, the King James may say he repented himself. It, it looked like he was doing something differently. He is doing something differently, but that does not mean that he has changed in his decree or plan or working. Does that make sense, what's happening there? Use passages, this is very specific, use passages that describe God's character to interpret passages that describe something God's doing. Because the only way we can think about God's doing is in our terminology, which is not God's way of doing. So we come back to the analogy of faith. This rule assumes that we will be, first, regularly reading through the whole of Scripture and coming to a full knowledge of its several parts all the time, learning and understanding all of the parts of all of the Bible. I put this online the other day. If you look at the various audio Bibles, 72 hours, 75 hours, 76 hours to read through the Bible, there's no reason why we could not work our way through the whole of Scripture all the time while at the same time focusing our studies on the various parts. But this assumes that we have <clears throat> a sense of the theological meaning of Scripture, that we know what's happening. This also, again, it's, it's a good plug for systematic theology, understanding these basic categories of thought. And also it assumes... And this is even better, I think, that the whole of Scripture has one unified meaning. No single part or parts will ever contradict each other or the teaching of the whole. This would be what the fifth paragraph refers to as the heavenliness of the matter and the consent of the parts, the majesty of the whole, when we consider that over 40 different authors over a period of 1,500, 2,000 years on multiple continents put together a book and when we put it together, none of the individual parts contradict each other and none of them contradict the whole teaching. That's spectacular. We believe that the Bible itself interprets itself and in so doing gives us the rules for interpreting it. So we do not have to formulate our own hermeneutical grid or method. We don't have to get together. It might be helpful, but we don't have to sit around and say, well, I follow the, the grammatical historical interpretation. What do, you, what do you use? Well, I use the redemptive historical interpretation. That stuff, we, we may want to consider those terms, but we should say, well, I let the Bible tell me how to read the Bible. The way the biblical authors use the Bible, that's how I use the Bible. God has told us how to read the Bible in the Bible. So we use the Scriptures to interpret the Scriptures. That's paragraph 9. Now very quickly, the last paragraph, all of that, the, the whole paragraph leads us to this final paragraph which I've called the finality of the Scriptures. And I, I think I can cover this quickly. You've probably all heard stuff like this from people who reject reformed confessionalism or people who might hold to the historic creeds of the Christian church. Those who oppose would say something like this, I don't need those creeds and confessions, I have the Bible. 
or no creed but Christ. You've probably heard that. Or the problem with you reform types is you believe your confession over the Bible. Or if you're ever in a disagreement or a discussion or you're trying to clarify a doctrine and you just you make the mistake of copying and pasting from your confession because it clearly lays out what you believe about the doctrine and they'll say, see, you can't even use the Bible. You just use your confession. You don't believe the Bible. Well, it seems like the popular notion of the unlearned, and again, not... That's not taking a stab at them when I say unlearned, uneducated. They don't understand a confession. They believe, very often they will believe that we believe our confession stands over the Bible. That when we have an issue, we run to the confession first. Well, unless you want to read 66 books in the next hour to try to come to a conclusion on this doctrine, it might be best just to say, I wonder what the confession says about this. But... The first chapter of this confession, and especially this final paragraph, refutes all of those accusations. And if you, if you learn anything from all of these studies from this chapter, learn this. Our confession says in the first chapter where we stop, where the buck stops when it comes to Christianity and the revelation of God. Notice the tenth paragraph. The supreme judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined. And have you ever been involved in the controversy of religion? We've all been there. You believe in believer's baptism or infant baptism. Does faith precede or follow regeneration? For whom did Christ die? What will be the process of the return of Christ? Is church membership important? Should the Lord's Supper be taken weekly, quarterly, yearly? Should we use grape juice or real wine? Should we use one cup or multiple cups? We've probably all seen every one of these arguments before. Now, does the confession address some of these issues? Yes, it does. Some of them. Is the confession the final authority on these issues? Absolutely not. And I don't know any confessional reformed believer who would say the confession is the final authority. So all these controversies of religion, the supreme judge of all decrees and councils, do we believe the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed and the Athanasian Creed and the Chalcedonian Creed or the Chalcedonian Statement? Yeah, we believe those. And we would say if you don't believe those, you're probably not a Christian. You probably believe in the wrong Jesus. Are they our final authority? Absolutely not. The opinions of ancient writers, Augustine, Calvin, Matthew Henry, John Owen, etc., 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 ad nauseum. There are more ancient writers than we can name or ever read. Do we read some of them? Sure. Are they our final authority? Absolutely not. Doctrines of men and private spirits. Here we can insert any of the various personal ideas that have been conjured up in the minds of men throughout the centuries. A guy just reads something and says, you know, I think it's this, or I think it's that, and starts his own thing. The supreme judge by which all of those sorts of things ultimately are to be examined, and in whose sentence we are to rest, can be no other but the Holy Scripture delivered by the Spirit into which Scripture so delivered, our faith is finally resolved. 
Do we believe that our confession of faith is true? Yes. Do we read Calvin and Owen and these guys? Yes. Do we affirm the orthodox creeds and confessions? Yes. Do we believe in historical theology and the use of Christ's gifts throughout the centuries for our own benefit? Yes. The question is, are any of those infallible? No, they're not. The Scriptures are the only sufficient, certain, and infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. It's there that our faith is resolved. That's where we stop, the Scriptures. In other words, our confession teaches us to be those who say to the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. We run to the word of God. Like we were talking yesterday morning, if, we're, if you're in a discussion and someone cannot even agree with you on the fundamental assertion that the scriptures are the inerrant, infallible, and sufficient word of God, they have no dawn. You, you can't... The, the, the argument can't go any further than that. You just assume, convince one of those blocks in that wall right there what you believe about a Christian doctrine as to convince someone who doesn't believe the Scriptures are the Word of God. We start there. They are the Word of God. They cannot err. They are without error. And they are sufficient. Everything we need is right here. Does anybody have any questions on what we believe about the doctrine of Scripture? If, if you do, grab a copy of the confession on your way out. Or a Bible on your way out. Let's pray. Lord, you are good to us. And though heaven and earth pass away, your word will not pass away. The grass withers and the flowers fail and fall and dry up and die every season, but the word of our God remains forever. Lord, I pray that you would convince us of this. Holy Spirit, convince us. Lord, I know every single one of us still wrestles sometimes with doubts and, we, we, and, and wonderings. Lord, I pray that you would convince us that the Holy Scriptures and only the Holy Scriptures are the only certain, sufficient, infallible rule of all saving knowledge, faith, and obedience. And I pray, Lord, that we would plant our feet here. We'd plant our faith here remembering that they point us to the Lord Jesus Christ and His work for us, that they find their sum total and, and, and the, the, full, the full gamut of their teaching finds its pinnacle and apex in the person of Jesus Christ. Every promise of God, everything you've ever revealed, the, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of you, our God, are found in Christ. In Him are all of the, the, the riches of God. Lord, I pray that that would be our aim, not just to stop at the Scriptures, not just to be scholastics, but to use the Scriptures as a mean to know our God and to lead others to that same truth and that same knowledge. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.